0: We had I had I had trouble getting all this together just because you know I've done read it so many times and y'all read it so many times. My my question was I was wondering why John put it together like this. Like, of course, you know John is the only gospel that records this miracle that Jesus did into water and the wine. And then John also puts the temple cleansing right here at the beginning with you know and and it could have been two temple cleansings but the rest of the the rest of the gospel authors put the temple cleansing closer to the end of Jesus's ministry and so that's what I was wondering why, why why he put it there for a reason to tell us something and so that was what I was struggling over and what I think what I think we see here in the in the two narratives the the turning the water into wine and the temple cleansing is that you see that Jesus is this is the breaking in of the era of salvation. All through the Old Testament the prophets prophesied about there's going to come a time, there's going to come a day when God's going to come deliver us. He's going to come deliver his people. He's going to come and there's going to be a great feast, a great banquet and uh, over and over in the Old Testament it talks about when that day comes you know there's going to be an abundance of wine, abundance of food, there's going to be abundance of and all those things were just pictures that pointed toward the fact that salvation and this abundant life of God is going to come and it's going to fill, you know, it's going to fill the the earth and, you know, we're going to sit at his table and, you know, it's just a picture of a big wedding feast, right? That's what, you've probably heard that the the wedding of the lamb, the, you know, we're his bride and he's the groomsman and, and so the, the picture of Of turning the water to wine, it's not really about hey y'all, let's all drink some wine, you know, and Jesus dipping the deals. I'm gonna keep the party going. Y'all go ahead. You know what I mean? It's not really. It's not really about that. It's about verse 11. Look down in verse 11. This really tells us the. It tells us the purpose of the miracle. It's not really about the wine, really. It says the beginning of miracles that did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Says this basically says this is the first sign that he did and manifested forth his glory that 's the purpose to manifest forth his glory and they continue, oh no and the, his disciples believed on it. you see what I mean, so what it was doing was he was fulfilling the types and the shadows the prophecies that in the Old Testament John is presenting him as here 's the fulfillment of all those things you heard about the the mountains dripping with new wine and the, the harvest banquet and talked about the Messiah coming to cleanse the temple. We'll see that in the second part of John. And then Jesus, Jesus even tells you that I am the fulfillment because he says, you know what? Basically he tells them, this is not the temple. I am the temple. My body's the temple. He said, you destroy this temple. Three days later I'll raise it up. And it says he was talking about his body. So it's talking about the fulfillment of all these things. So if you, if you notice the first, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a picture of the end of one age and the beginning of this new age. Like the one age began with Moses and Moses' first miracle was what? You don't know Moses. You ever seen the 10 commandments? He turned water into blood. 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 Yeah, no, it wasn't wine. It was blood. It was a curse. It was the the curse and the law and it was the start of all that stuff. And Jesus' miracle, the fulfillment of all those things was to turn water into wine. Right, okay, so what we 'll see is uh, i just before we read it, I just want to get that through your head that it 's not just about hey let 's turn some water into wine, yay it's, you know it 's not just about that it 's a picture of well because that 's the way they wrote it i don 't know so they uh, it's not it 's not a picture of just about the wine it 's a picture of the fulfillment of um, of the the time of the Messiah, everybody got me. You with me, huh? Proclaim and do this miracle. It was done like they didn't ask him to, and he didn't command it; it just happened. Right. It's like the dog. Well, his mama asked him to. Yeah, but he didn't. Right. Fill the water, and then as he drank, it was King Jesus. Yeah. The he didn't command it. Yeah. He didn't say, thou shalt be. It just was. And he didn't touch it. He never touched it. He, He did it through his servants' hands, his disciples' hands, the servants of the banquet's hands. So let's read it and then we'll see. We're going to read the first 11 verses, just the whole deal. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto his servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. I explain that in a second. Containing two or three firkins apiece. Y'all know what a firkin is? I had to look it up my own self it's it's about uh, two or three firkins would be about six pots would be it'd be about 20 gallons so it's not like a oh look at the pot it's like there's a pot you know what I'm saying it's like 20 gallons so six of these pots would have been between 120 150 gallons each pot was 20 gallons, each pot was 20 gallons. Wow. yeah and so I had to look it up myself I don't know what a firkin is <laughs> Where am I at here? Seven. Seven. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. The governor was like the head servant, the one who was in charge of supplies and stuff. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when the men have well drunk, then... Which is worse. Then they bring the bad wine out. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning the miracles of Jesus in Caelan of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. His disciples believed on it. Okay, so you saw the purpose of the miracle was his glory, to manifest his glory and that the disciples would believe on him. It wasn't about just, hey, let's all drink some wine, okay? Um, It points to the greater reality, I already talked about that, how he fulfills all those things. Um, The wedding, you gotta, the wedding feast for a Jewish family was like a week long. It wasn't just like an hour or two, like what we're thinking, and In that week-long festival, basically, the whole town got together to celebrate the marriage of the man and the woman. And so the, the groom's job, his responsibility to the people that were feasting and partying at the wedding was that he was to supply the stuff. The food, the wine, the whole deal. He had to supply. And it was shameful. It would bring great shame on his family if he ran out. It would be, I mean, it was such a big deal that there are instances where people were like legal proceedings. Came about because they ran out, like like they sue them because they didn't have enough, you know, or something like that. So, I mean, for him to run out of wine was was a really big deal. And I don't know how many of y'all read that thing I sent, but at this time, there's there's um, there's precedent for wine being mixed with water rather than drank drank completely, you know, just all by itself. And so, you know, there's uh, it's not a hill I'm going to fight and down, but there's a precedent for the fact that wine, when it was drunk, was diluted with water, uh, so we're not just talking about dudes getting plastered all week long, you know what I mean? It was, you know, you, there was no refrigeration, so you couldn't keep water in jars, it would get stagnant, but if you mixed it with a little wine, the fermentation in the wine would keep it good to drink, and it wouldn't be like, wouldn't be. it's still an alcoholic beverage, but it wouldn't be like drinking and get wasted, you know what I mean? See what I mean? So... I'm thinking, after reading that, from what you had said, that it's it'd be kind of like flavored water, what we buy here, you know. Now, it, it would have a flavor, you know, but it wouldn't be real strong. You know how it still tastes watered down. Probably, but we we still have to give room to the fact that they said. You know, you drink the bad wine the good wine and then when we all get like where well, we don't care no more, you know what I mean? So you still have to get room room for that, but I think you're I think you're right. There's a differentiation in scripture between wine and what they call strong drink, you know, which is always condemned and drunkenness is condemned. So if Jesus is at the party going, you know, y'all just all right, go ahead. You know, <laughs> then we got a problem with all these verses that condemn drunkenness. You know what I mean? So you have to make, you have to work all that. You have to work all that together. And like I did, I, I quoted those, you know, uh, there aren't Bible scriptures, but they're historical passages where this sets the precedent that, yes, we do mix wine with water, you know, in order to dilute it. So it's not, you know, but, you know, that kind of thing. So the. The problem when Mary came to Jesus was it's not like, oh no, they're out of wine. I mean, it's like this is a big deal. Like this family's gonna be shamed, and this is just my own mind, it's my own thinking, but I'm thinking that whoever was getting married, the bride's never mentioned, the groom's never mentioned, the family's never mentioned, Mary's name is not mentioned. It always says the mother of Jesus, you know. So Jesus is really the only character in the story that's mentioned. But if to my thinking, it's probably something. Somebody in Mary's family. Because if you notice, Jesus is invited, she's invited, and Mary's taking on kind of like this motherly, you know, role about, you know, I need to take care of this, they're about to run out of wine, I gotta go do something. You know, she's taking on the I don't know how many of y'all have been to a bunch of weddings, but you let mama get in the door and she's gonna take care of some stuff. You know what I'm saying? She's fixing to take care of it. So, but that's just my own thinking. That could be true, could not be true, doesn't matter. But they're at this wedding, and so so, what happens is they run out of wine, which is a big deal. It's like shameful, almost, you know, it's like this family's in trouble. For us, it'd be like, you know, so what? Let's run down to Walmart, you know, but for them, it was a big deal. And so Mary comes to Jesus and what Jesus does First of all, it shows us that this is the beginning of his ministry. It's the beginning of his it's the beginning of him revealing himself as the Messiah. So the first thing that I saw in the passage was he's got a new relationship with his mom. Now, he said woman, now that it sounds bad to call your mom woman, but for them it wasn't a it wasn't a disrespectful way to say, hey you or whatever, but it was uncommon for a son to speak to his mother that way. So it it wasn't like he was disrespecting his mother, but what was going on was she, this is where Jesus steps out into the, into the forefront and begins his ministry. This is where the times of fulfillment are starting to be done. And he has a new relationship with his mom right now. Yeah. He can't just come. She's not going to be able to come to him as mom. And say, Well, now, okay, all right, come on, Jesus, now let's get real. Let's get she's got to come to him as Savior, just like everybody else in the world. She's gonna have to understand that he is he is while he is her earthly son, he is also Lord, he is also Savior, and she is going to have to come to him, not in the closeness of the relationship with, you know, as you would come with your child or with your mother or whatever. She's gonna have to come to him in the relationship of sinner-savior, just like everybody else, okay? If there aren't... already had that because she to that he could do something bad. Oh, yeah, there was no doubt that she knew he was the Messiah, right? Oh, of course. I mean, how many virgin births does it take for you to know that <laughs> this guy is the real deal? But, you know, can you imagine being mom and, you know, he's growing up and, you know, I, I don't really know what it was like raising God's son, but, you know, he never sinned. So, I mean... But you can imagine the bond, I mean, all y'all who have kids or have moms know the bond or sisters or, you know, family members of any kind, you know, the bond. And so she, she probably was just living that out, you know, and just coming along. But when Jesus first stepped on the stage, this is his first miracle, his ministry is about to start. She needs to understand. If you notice, we'll see through the rest of this gospel that he kind of distanced himself from the rest of his family, not in a way that's like, oh, I don't want to see y'all, but like, if y'all are going to come to me, you're going to have to come to me the same way everybody else does. Sinner, Savior. Like, there's one time where he's teaching, and they come in, they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. He said, who are my mother and brothers? He said, he said, all these that do the will of God are my mother and my brothers. You know, and so you see that you can't, there's no. There's no, uh, there's no special relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's no good old boy system, no scratching your Right, right. Even those who had grown up with Jesus are going to come the same way. So if we're, you know, you grow up in a Christian home, whatever. well, I've known this Jesus for. You got to come the same way everybody else does. Sinner, Savior, same way. And so I, I saw it when. He said that, woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally, it says, what to me and you? He says, what is this, what are you doing? My hour has not come yet. You know, it's not time for me to be, it's not time for me to be made known, be revealed. You know, I don't, I don't work on your schedule. You know, mom, I work on the father's schedule. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it seems like, it seems like she understood this and she understood it as him saying, You know, I'm gonna do something. But it's not because, you know, your mom, it's because I'm on the father's timetable. Because when she when he said, Hey woman, what does this have to do with me and you, my hours not come, what'd she say? Yes, she she Oh she went to the servants and she says, Oh, just do do whatever he tells you. So it's like if he's gonna do something fine, if he's not fine, but you know, he he, he can do it. So, and you see, I see that uh, from this point on, nobody comes to Christ in a familiar way that can, you know, like the good old boy thing. You come as sinner savior. And so what Jesus did, he's, this is new relationship with his mom this is what what we're seeing here. But there's also this new, this new use of this new, it's like the taking away of all the ritual and the are replacing it with the joy of, of grace and all that. So, so you see the pots, the six pots were, it says, for the purifying of the Jews. What they're used for is, imagine we had like six big water pots. Now, like, I'm talking about this, big, big water pots along this you would be we're all at the banquet we're all at the wedding there were specific times during the feast during the banquet remember it goes on for seven days could go on seven days so it's not just a hey let's all get together now we'll go home i mean this deal goes on for a long time And so there were certain times in the feast where you'd come and you would ritually wash and purify, you know, as the Jews would come, you know, before you eat, you'd have to do these things at certain times during the feast, you would come and you would ritually wash your hands and you had to wash them a certain way. Like there was, I mean, it was literally prescribed how far up the arm you were supposed to wash. And, and, you know, it was just these ritual purifications that you had to do. And these were all men's men. Laws. And so you could see that Jesus took these, these things were not just, hey, there's some pots sitting nowhere in a corner. Let me use them pots and get it. These were being used at the feast for the ritual purification of the Jews. And so when Jesus turned all that into wine. It was like I'm taking away, you know, for the rest of this banquet, don't even worry about it. I mean, you ain't gonna be able to wash in the wine, you know what I mean? And if you do, it's kind of gross, because I won't drink it anyway. But he was taking away the. What am I looking for? The ability. The he was taking away the the ritual. They couldn't do the ritual anymore because now all these big stone water pots were filled with wine, and they were gonna. You know, it was it was the joyous feast of 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 God's grace. I guess that makes sense. Y'all with me? Did you want to say something? What? Would that have caused them a problem when he asked them to do that with that particular group of? If it was set aside for that reason, and he said, go do this with it, would they have, like, a Probably. Like, out loud, but Probably. The way I read it, I don't think anybody really knew, except for the servants. Because if you read it, look, it says, look back at the text. It says... I mean, they knew once it was done, but they didn't know how or why or what. It says uh, when he brought it to the rule of the feast and he tasted the water made wine, he knew not whence it was. And then there's a little aside says, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and they called him and said, you know, you done brought out the best wine. So I'm thinking Mary, Jesus and the servants may have been the only ones who saw the miracle. And that's hence Jesus' words, you know, my time's not come yet. It's not time for me to be revealed revealed into the Messiah. So, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that this was the beginning of the age of salvation where the ritual and the, the practice, is; these are all man-made rituals and practices are going to be done away with and no longer in use, no longer valid. No longer valid for you to come to God by ritual and by practice and by, by obedience and all this. You're going to have to come by this man, by this Savior. Was, but, you know, going back, drawing back to verse 11, that miracle was... Like it said for his disciples, so that right his disciples that was closest to him. That's where the belief system started. Right, right. As far as the guests knew, this is wine. You know, they just we supposed to have wine. Here's the wine. You know what I mean? They, so, but they took the. I mean, he took those six pots and he turned it into not just water-tasting wine, but actual... And they said it was the best. They said you gave us the best. Yeah, it says wine. Now, there are some old theologians that say, you know, there's poetic language that says, you know, that the water saw its creator and it blushed and, you know, that kind of stuff. But the The ruler of the feast, you know, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But the ruler of the feast, the ru- I know, the ruler of the feast tasted it and said, "This wine's better than the other wine." You know, so you know. I would think because, well, like you said, they call what we think of as wine, they call it strong drink. So if it was, if they're saying that they might it was wine, then it would be diluted. Yeah, uh, no, no, we're not. Yeah, we're I, we're kind of past that. I'm not. I, yeah. Well, th- this. Me, sure yeah, this isn't about all of them getting drunk and all that not, stuff. there it, it was not. He took away every aspect of it, even being able to be even uh, diluted water where they could wash hands. I mean, he made it just pure. Water. Well, it was no longer water in the pots. Right. So that's what that's what's entailing. And it wasn't just a little bit of wine. We're talking about 150 gallons now. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about abundance of wine. You know what I mean? And so it would have been it would have been wine diluted with with water. But there was no. It was no longer able to wash yourself. Yeah, you were no longer able to ritually wash yourself in it. Make sense. So, what you see, it's not just about, hey, let's keep the party going. It's about, it's about, look, I am beginning this new age of salvation that's gonna be, you know, this was, this was to show those servants, those disciples to manifest his glory in the fact that, that he is here to to undo all the religious and ritual knots that have been made and pulled, you know, pulled us to where we, we're unable to please God, unable to work for God, unable to do anything, you got to follow all these rules, you gotta do this just a certain way. You've got to wash your hands in a certain manner at a certain time, at a certain station, at a certain deal. You know, he just takes all that away, turns all the all the stone water jars full of water into, into wine. And it relieves the need that the groom and the bride have for being, you know, for being shamed. Does that make sense? So what we're seeing what we're seeing here is It's a miracle not so everybody can go get wasted. It's a miracle that shows Jesus' glory in bringing in this new era of salvation. It's right here at the beginning, we saw the introduction of John. We saw a few of the disciples start to be called. And then, bang, right here at the beginning, it says this gives us a perfect picture of this new age that that the Messiah has come to bring, which does away with the ritual. away with the other stuff and it is the fulfillment of all those prophets that said, you know, the the coming of the Messiah is going to be a a huge banquet of joy and it's going to be abundance of wine and and food and, you know, it's going to be all those things. This picture that John puts right here in chapter two is a picture that, hey, this is coming to fulfillment. You understand? So for us, you're saying, well, that's great. What does it have to do with me? For you, and for me, you understand that Jesus brings this fulfillment into our lives as well. He brings the fulfillment of grace. He brings the fulfillment of I have relationship with him through his, his sacrifice and his resurrection. Therefore, I don't have to tiptoe around daddy's house. You know, hoping that I'm not going to mess up where Daddy throws me out. You see what I mean? I don't have to worry about keeping the rituals and making sure that I have the letter of the law perfectly. All I do is it says Jesus said, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." So I just love Jesus, and then by nature of that, he inside of me lives to to follow his commandments. But I'm not bound by I'm not bound by uh, the punishment. For messing up. Does that make sense? I'm free. I'm free to live in peace and joy, knowing that even when I mess up, I have a father that forgives me through his son. Does that make sense? Right. I'm not fearful that if I mess up, I'm going to get booted out of the family. See what I mean? Does that make sense? Different? Okay. And the second thing is the temple cleansing. This will be a little easier. The wine thing had me... I had to look up a lot of things just to... You know, just because I knew it was going to be questions. But the temple cleansing is a lot easier. And then the very last section is going to be simple. I'm trying to get through this chapter before we get before we uh, leave. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, verse 13. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen poured out the changers' of money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of mer- merchandise. And his disciples remembered it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou dost these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, without would thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the the temple of his body. Where when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed in scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now to get this picture in your head, think about this. What are all these animals doing in the temple, in the temple court? Yeah, they're selling. And why are they selling? For sacrifice. Yeah, for sacrifice. Which is that's okay. But what had, what had started happening was, you know, people would come from all over. Once a year, it'd be millions, I mean literally millions of people in Jerusalem to sacrifice at the Passover. And people would come from all over and maybe they didn't bring their lamb or whatever and so they would have lambs there, they would have goats, they would have pigeons, they would have all the animals that you would need to sacrifice. And so started out where you could just go and buy an animal right there. You wouldn't have to transport an animal from wherever. You'd buy an animal right there, you'd say, Sacrifice to animals. Well, it got to be where uh, they started jacking the price up on the animals. Right, And then it got to be where the corruption in the temple was so bad that the high priest, if you brought your animal, the high priest would have to okay your animal. You know, like, does it have spot or blemish? Does it, you know, is it the right age, whatever? And so the priests got kickbacks from the animal sellers to not okay animals that weren't sold right there in the temple. It's like the movie theater. You know, you can't bring your own popcorn. You know what I'm saying? Well, it might be a bad example, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Good example. And the priests would, the money changers and, or the, the the animal sellers there in the court. It was the court of the Gentiles where they sold. It was it was like I ain't got no chalk. But like you had this big temple court, and then that was the court of the Gentiles, and you had a smaller court inside, which is the court of the women. Then you had a smaller court inside, which was just for the Jews. And then you had the holy of holies and the, all that in, in the middle. And so out here in these courts, they were selling all these animals to these to the people that would come and to give sacrifice. And the priests would would get kickbacks from the animal sellers to not okay, like when somebody brought their lamb that weren't that wasn't sold in the court, you know it's a blemish right there. You can't use this one, you know? And so you would have to buy it there and they could jack the price up to whatever they want. And the money changers, you had to pay the temple tax in the shekel, which was the money that you had to pay it in. And so people would come from all over and they would have to change their foreign money for this shekel in order to pay the temple tax. Well, guess what happens? They start jacking the price up on that. And so what's going on here is the worship of God is being turned into, is being turned into greed and business, and and in order to, in, yeah, politics. In order to worship God, you make sure you had to have enough money to buy the right animal. And you had you had to have enough money to buy the right kind of money to pay the temple tax. And it wasn't about coming in and praying to God. It wasn't about coming in and making a sacrifice to God. It wasn't about coming in and communing with God and having my sins covered for the next year and all those kind of things. It had become about making the priest money, making the temple money, making the people who were working in the temple rich. It had become a house of merchandise. And so Jesus, incidentally, this fulfills prophecies in the Old Testament where he comes and cleanses the temple. Jesus comes in, sees all this stuff, and goes berserk. Makes up a thing and starts whipping them and shooing them out of the temple and all this stuff. Now can you imagine what kind of, what kind of ruckus this would have caused? What kind of things this would have caused uh, that says the temple... You know the temple police, the Levites came to him. It's like you're gonna to have to give us a sign that you that you have the authority to do this. And what sign did he offer? Him? Scripture. No. No. What did he say? I mean, what he said was scripture. Yes. But what he said? He said, uh, huh? Uh, right. But what what was he talking about when he said, "Tear, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days"? That's right. Do you see? Right. Do you, you see what he was saying? Basically, he was saying the only sign you're going to get from me is me. <laughs> is me? Yeah. Is that I am? I am the temple. Therefore, you know, after his resurrection when he died, when he died and was raised again, when the temple was destroyed and raised again on the third day, there was no more there was no more need for a temple. Jerusalem to sell animals and to sacrifice animals. There was no more need for that because Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest that offered the sacrifice and he was the temple where the sacrifice was offered. And so the sign that he gave, the sign that he gave that he had the authority to clear out all those money changers in the temple was the fact that he himself had come to die for the sins of the world and to make all that temple all those sacrifices all those money changers all those priests all those stuff to make those irrelevant and that's why you don't you didn't bring a goat here this morning have any of y'all i know you deer hunters that have skin a deer y'all know what it's all about but i mean can you imagine can you imagine doing that every sunday every week or they did it every day, the priests did, but once a year you would come and there would be two million people that brought, well, it'd be for a family. So two million people, we say, two or three apiece. Say 500,000 lambs. <laughs> 500,000 lambs. I mean, there's there's documents talking about how the blood ran like a river out of Jerusalem because one, I mean, just one right after the other, you know, sprinkle the blood and then in two or three days they would do all these lamps. The stink, the smell, the I mean, we had to clean out, we had to straighten up Eddie's barn the other night for that fall fest, you know, and. Yeah. Houston said, "We we already cleaned it, right? And the first thing, we making this maze in the back. First thing I did, step in a big old horse turd. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's kind of gross, man. That's what I thought y'all had. And I had my little croc deals on, too. It wasn't like I had booze on. Yeah, it was like, man. Was like... Now, imagine imagine hundreds of animals. Imagine in, in, in the temple. Hundreds of animals, and then there's a place in the very back where they're slaughtering them, you know, and doing away with the corpses. And so you can see, you can see the ugliness of sin in that. You can see the holiness of God in the fact that he required this. He required blood to be shed for the remission of sins. And it was all pointing toward this one who would come, this Messiah who would be revealed in the last times that he would come and by his own blood, he would enter into the heavenly temple and he would shed his own blood, his own life to pay for sin once and for all. And That's the reality that Jesus was pointing to. In both stories, in both uh, pictures, episodes in this chapter, you see, number one, he has come to put away this ritual deal you know I've come to bring the feast basically I've come to bring the abundance of life I've come to bring the joy and then in the second instance you said, I've come to do away with this temple deal he said I am the temple you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days now the priest didn't have no idea what he was talking about but his disciples knew later on that he spoke of his body his body is the temple and once he dies and raises r- rose from the dead then I our bodies become the temple as the holy spirit lives inside of us does that make sense you see how the two fit together that he came as fulfillment in the first one and then he came as fulfillment in the second one and then the last little the last little the last two or three verses of this chapter basically outlines what this means for us as far as what he did it says Verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, this is right after he's done, cleansed the temple and and done all these things, it says, In the feast day, when the feast was there, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now you see, what's going on here? Many believed on him. But it wasn't a saving faith. They believed because they saw the miracles that he did. And so Jesus, it says he did not commit himself to them. But it's the same exact word as believed. So really, if I literally translate it, it would be many believed on him, but Jesus did not Believe on them, basically. And what it's talking about here is they did not come to him with sincere faith. This is in John, especially. Uh, true faith and false faith are always set opposed to each other using a different tense. Uh, this, this may just stick with me, real the the past tense when when belief or believe is used in John and it's in the past tense, they believed, it's always false faith. When it's used in the present tense, and this is in Greek, it may be translated different, it's always true saving faith. So true saving faith is one that is ongoing. It's not one that, you know, well, you know, I, I did that already. Does that make sense? It's the if you wanna if you wanna look it up, it's the aorist tense and the present tense. When when it's used in when it's used in like they did that or when I I believed on him, I did that, I got that done, it's a done deal, let's go. Well when when you talk about it that way, that's not the kind of faith John talks about as enduring saving faith. But when you talk about they are believing, they believe right now. It's an ongoing action, it's a lifestyle, it's a it's a thing like whosoever Believes on Him, not whosoever believed on Him, but whosoever believes on Him will have, you know, everlasting life. <clears throat> faith in John, belief in John—that is—that is saving faith—is a faith that is an ongoing action. It's a—it's a lifestyle going on from from day to day to day to day. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Like, is it like what John was talking about? Come in, you get saved, go to church, and then Monday you're just a different person? Oh, it could be, absolutely. It's a super, it's a a believing that facts are true. Does that make sense? Like you can believe the facts of Christianity are true without believing, trusting the person of Christ. Does that make sense? So whenever you see, you'll see, no, let me show you an example and then we'll get back. <clears throat> right. Flip over, to, flip, yeah, flip over to John 8 and I'll show you a good example. That way I'll clear all this up. Is this just in John of? Uh, it, it pretty much, well, no, it's consistent in John. It's used that way other places, but John always uses it that way. Um, John 8, uh, Jesus 31. Okay, look, verse 30 says, And he spake the, as he spoke these words, many believed on him. Past tense, right? Mm-hmm. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And from this point on, from this point on, he goes into this big long discussion with these Jews who had believed on him. And by the end of the discussion, by the end of the discussion, last cha- verse in the chapter, these same Jews that had believed on jesus verse 59 said then they took up stones to cast at him but jesus hid himself so at the end at the beginning of the discussion that they were having it says they believed on him because of what he was saying and then they start talking about well abraham this and jesus was telling them well truly if you don't know you know if you don't know me you're not gonna he after the discussion was over they're ready to kill it Right? In chapter 6, John chapter 6, I think Johnny Wayne preached it not too long ago, or maybe it was Brother Eddie. It talks about uh, disciples that were following him. And then in in John 6, and it just happened to be John 6, verse 66, so that's how I can remember it, but in in that verse it says, and they followed him no more. Well, those disciples had believed, past tense, but it wasn't a saving faith, it wasn't a true ongoing faith. So what you see is, Jesus comes in, chapter 2 of John, Jesus comes in to do away with all this to come he comes in to fulfill this Era of the Messiah, this era of grace, this era of abundance of God, where God sheds His love and pays for our wrath, pays for His wrath, and does all these things for our sin, and He comes to bring all this, and He comes to do away with that ritual deal that people thought they were getting in good God with God for, and He comes in to make sure that we know that He is the Temple. He's going to tell us in John four. He said, "There's going to come a time when you're not going to worship on that mountain or this mountain. He's going you're going to worship in spirit and truth." he come to tell these Jews that I am the temple. You destroy this temple right here, and in three days I'll raise it up. They misunderstood, of course, but that's what he was talking about. And then finally, there were people at the Passover who were coming and they were believing on him because of what they saw going on. Because of the things that Jesus could do for them, and that's going to be a, a theme over and over again in John. They, you can't come to Christ because He's going to do something for me. You come to Christ because He's already done something for you, and that something is that He died for your sins. Over and over again, I can tell you a hundred stories. When a you know a man's wife leaves him, and the first place he goes is church, and he's like, "Y'all pray." I got you know, I, I met a man in the office and. I was like, now, you know, I done had five of the bin right here. And all the only reason that you're here is to get your wife back. He's like, no, that ain't it. I'm telling you, I'm getting right with God. It's all good. Wife came back. Boop, and he's gone. You can't come to God for what God can do for you. God's not a butler in the sky. Jesus was not a magician just here to please you. When we get to Herod, Herod, that's all Herod wanted. Do a trick for me, Jesus. You know, it says Jesus never even opened his mouth. Wouldn't even speak to it. And it says these guys believed, but they weren't trusting in Jesus. They just wanted a Messiah that could do miracles for them. They wanted a Messiah that would get them out of bondage. Y'all with me? You understand? So what we what we see from this passage is that Christ has brought the abundance of life to you. He's done away with all the ritual observances. He's done away with all the things, the hoops you got to jump through. He's done away with all the, oh no, I hope I'm doing okay, God doesn't love me anymore. He's done away with all that. But at the very end, you need to see that you have to trust Him. You have to trust in him. You have to be in a personal relationship with him. It's not just believing, yes, I believe there was a man named Jesus and he turned water into wine and he cleansed the temple. It's about trusting in this man and having a relationship with him. Understanding that He is the source of your joy. He is the source of your abundance. He is the source of your goodness. And eventually when you stand before the Father, He will be the source of your salvation. He'll be the source of the only goodness that you have. When you stand before the Father at judgment... He'll say, you know, you've heard the deal, why should I let you into heaven? You will not be allowed to offer not one bit of evidence for anything that you did good as evidence as to why you should enter in. The only evidence that's allowed in that courtroom will be because Jesus died for my sins. You understand? Y'all with me? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we, we just, God, you're so good to us that you would come and that you would, uh,